Thanks for listening to the Mercy Church Podcast. If you're in the area, we want to invite you to join us the last weekend in March as we celebrate Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Good Friday services will be at 6 p.m. on Friday evening. And then on Sunday morning, we invite you to join us for a time of worship, a message, and baptisms. Bring your friends, your family, and if you feel so led, invite your coworker, cashier, or barista to join you. Services will be held at regular service times at all campuses. To learn more, visit mercycharlotte.com slash events. Again, that's mercycharlotte.com slash events. Hey, I want to welcome you to Mercy Church. My name is Spence. I'm one of the pastors here, and we are going to hop right into our uh, our text for today. We're going to be over in the Old Testament book, The Song of Solomon. We're going to be over in chapter four. We're walking through a series in the book, Song of Solomon, just to kind of catch you up. There's two stories that we see happening in this book that we're walking through. It's um, Hebrew love poetry that we're looking at. And we've got this man and this woman, and they're singing songs to one another, expressing their love for one another. And we're watching their relationship grow, right? We've got um, the first, gosh, three weeks, we looked at what the godly man is and the godly woman is. And we got an overview of this book. And then we saw them date. And now, uh, last week, we saw their marriage. And we talked about how marriage Marriage is a covenant, not a contract, right? A contract being where this is, as long as you provide your end of the deal, then I'll provide my end of the deal. We said, that's not what marriage is. That's a contract. Marriage is a covenant that says, no matter what I do, no matter what you do, I do. I'm committing to you. That was last week. And we said, behind this whole thing, that's one story that's going on, is the man and the woman, and and they're coming together, and we're following their story But behind that is another story, and that is God's love for his people. God's love for the church. Uh, God's love for his people that we see throughout all of scripture where he calls his people, his bride, and we're learning so much about who God is and how much he loves us and actually how he has designed love to be a reflection of his love for us. So we said the main idea of the series is that God is love, right? That's 1 Timothy 4. God is love Not only is, or 1 John 4, God is love, God made love, and God gives love. So I'm going to choose to pursue what we're looking at all week, or excuse me, all series, is I'm going to pursue his way of love in my life. Well, the wedding night and the celebration today, that's what we're going to look at is the wedding night, all right? Last week was the wedding. This week as we get into chapter four, it's the wedding night. We're going to see the celebration of sexual passion that blooms in this marriage of a husband and a wife. So today... We are going to talk about sex. I want to go ahead and tell you this will be uh, very much what we could call a PG-13 sermon, all right? So, mom, dad, um, I'm about to have the talk, all right? So if, that, if you want me to do that for you or at least tee things up, that's what's about to happen, okay? Uh, if not, we've got members of our student ministry team that are out in the hallway and happy to, um, to help you out so that you can get back in here and hear it, all right? But what I will say, as I've said several times, is the world is talking about this. And we've got something way better than the world does to offer, so we're going to talk about it. I do want to reiterate also to those of you that are not married that this is for you too. We're talking about sex as God designed it, right? Like an artist, God has created sex to do multiple things. He's created it for marriage, enrichment, and recreation, and we'll see that today. He's created it for making babies, and he's created it to tell us about himself. And listen, to all of us, I would say, and there's a tendency to kind of go, ah, I don't want to hear uh, a sermon or hear what God has to say about it. But 
If we are willing to listen and watch so intently what pop culture has to say about sex, about its view on sex, that sex is just a moment of passion, maybe we should be willing to listen to what God has to say about it since he has something, uh, he's actually filled it with really great meaning. In other words, if you're kind of in that spot where you feel like a sermon on sex may not be for you, but a Grey's Anatomy sex scene is for you, I would really encourage you to check your heart as you walk into this, right, and, and be open to what God has to say. And not only that, um, single or married, wherever you are, if you think back to last week, if you sense that this isn't for you now, man, it might be for you later, especially true for you single folks. It, it may not be for you now, but it might also be for somebody that you know and love. God has put them in your life. La- one of the last things I want to say, it's not lost on me as we enter into this sermon on sex that we live in a broken world. So I feel like I need to say right here something to those of you that are survivors of abuse. I know your defenses went up already. The message you're going to hear today is that God loves you and that God wants you. You're not damaged goods. You are a precious son or daughter. And in him, there is healing from pain and hope for tomorrow. Those aren't empty words. Those are words of friends of mine who have gone that same road that you have gone. You're going to hear me reference sexual sin some today. But being abused, that is not your sin. That's suffering. And God offers abundant hope for those who choose to lean into him in their suffering. God loves you, and this church loves you. I know that's a heavy thing to say as an intro to a sermon, but this is real life, y'all. We're not playing games here. We believe God can change a life, and he can start today. We expect him to when we gather And so we got to acknowledge the situations we're in and acknowledge that he has the power to heal the brokenness we experience in this world. What we're seeing in this series is how powerful sexuality really is, right? It's got great power for good in marriage, but also great harm if misused. So today, as we get into chapter four in the first verse of chapter five, it's going to show the husband and wife coming together as one, and there's no hint of shame, no embarrassment, no lewdness. Instead, there is holy delight delight in and celebration of married sexuality. So much so that God is going to conclude in chapter five, verse one, the one time that God speaks directly in this whole book, and he's going to bless the very moment they come together in marriage. And so our thesis for today, our one big idea that you got to walk, that I hope you walk out of here with today, we're going to talk about sex. Sex is God's gift for serving your spouse, not yourself. That's the big idea today. Sex According to scripture, is God's gift, and it's a gift for serving your spouse, not yourself. So I'm going to walk through the text for about 15 minutes. I just want to walk through this and let it kind of speak for itself. I'll give some observations, and then having received this whole thing, I want to show you, I think it's going to be three truths on the Christian view of sex from scripture. So last note, if this is your first time to Mercy Church, I just want to say uh, welcome. Uh, we... Uh, Uh, You know, if you didn't know this was coming at you, just um, welcome. We really are glad that you're here. Um, You know, one thing I'll I'll say is the world, like I said, is talking about this nonstop. So I'm glad that you're going to hear a little bit today about what God has to say about it. Uh, We're just going through this whole book. We invite you to stay and um, hear more in the weeks to come. All right. But I just acknowledge this might be a little surprise. So surprise. And here we go. Um, 
Chapter 4, starting in verse 1 of Song of Solomon, the first seven verses right here, um, they're actually a literary unit together. He's going to, it's going to look like he's just talking about how awesome his girl is, all right? The setting is the wedding night. They're alone, finally now, the two of them, and he is not rushing anything. He's going to pause just to praise her. These seven verses may make up a poetic device. It's called a wasf, W-A-S-F, very common in ancient Middle Eastern literature. And in fact, every culture has had some version of this where the author just gives specific praise to the thing that has captured his eye. All right, this is the first of four that we're gonna bring that up because we're gonna see four of these total, this being the first of them in the back half of the scripture, uh, of this book of the Bible. All right, verse one, how beautiful you are, my darling. How very beautiful. Behind your veil, your eyes are doves. Your hair is like a flock of goats streaming down Mount Gilead. Now, verse 1, if you have been following along with us, it's actually a repetition of chapter 1, verse 15. He's called her beautiful five times already by chapter 4. Fellas, he doesn't assume that she knows how beautiful he thinks she is. He says it. All right? He says it. He tells her with words and stuff. Right? Behind the veil, her eyes are like doves. That's not only him noticing even how the whites of her eyes are contrasted against her brown skin. It's more than that. It's also the peace and purity that he feels from her. That's what doves symbolize. And he's saying, you are pure and you bring peace to my heart here when I'm with you. Her hair is like a flock of goats. He's saying it's full and it's thick and it's cascading down her naked body and it's beautiful to him. Verse 2, your teeth are like a flock of newly shorn sheep coming up from washing, each one bearing twins and none has lost its young. This might seem a little funny to you, I don't know, but he's basically saying, blessed are you among women, you actually have all your teeth. And not only that... They're like newly shorn sheep. They're kind of white. They, they match one to the other. You know, none of them are missing. And in a world before orthodontics and cosmetic dentistry, that's a rarity, right? But he doesn't just say, oh, what nice teeth you have. He figures out a way to praise even her teeth. Y'all, my girl, my wife, Courtney, she has an amazing, amazing smile. By the time I started dating her, I'd already had braces twice, okay? Another story for another time. But I see her smile, and I'm like, that's the greatest smile on earth. I wonder how many times she had to have braces because I'm thinking about my own experience, right? And then she tells me she never had them at all, like God was her orthodontist or something like that, you know? And I'm like, oh my gosh, I love her smile. And I tell her that constantly. Now, by the way, don't be awkward when you see her. She's at the next service. Don't make it weird. But she does have an amazing smile. Verse three, your lips are like a scarlet cord and your mouth is lovely. Behind your veil, your brow is like a slice of pomegranate. The brow is actually better translated cheeks. All right, he's kind of working his way down. You know, he's not talking about her eyebrows. He's talking about her mouth. Her lips are red. Her mouth is lovely. Her cheeks, they have this hint of rosiness to them. The point of all this is to say, your mouth is intoxicating and I want to kiss it. Like, that's what he's doing here. Verse 4, your neck, still going down, is like the Tower of David, constructed in layers. A thousand shields are hung on it. All of them shields of warriors. I love this one. Remember, metaphor. He's not saying your neck is so long it's like a giraffe. You know, it's not what he's doing, okay? There's something else happening here. He's likening her neck to the Tower of David as a way to talk about her character. 
she stands tall and holds her head up like Israel's great warrior king. She has the strength of a tower that could hold a thousand shields. No man can conquer this woman. She's too strong. And he appreciates her strength. Right? See, this is such a wonderful word to today's church. A godly woman can have the gentle and quiet spirit she's called to have in 1 Peter 3 and the strength of the Shulamite woman. These are not at odds. So scripture sums up in the word meekness that it calls women to. Meekness does not mean weakness. It means great strength or power under control. And that's what you see here. Men, it's not feminism creeping into the church to honor the strength of your queen. It's just biblical. And when we encourage our queens to hold their heads high as the strong women God made them to be, they have less desire to seek approval in other places, and they flourish in who God has made them to be. Verse 5, he keeps going down. Your breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle, the feet among the lilies. He's seeing his wife naked before him, sees her breasts, and he says they're beautiful and full of life. So, y'all, so important in this moment. Very, very vulnerable moment right here. He is making her feel safe and secure with every word that he says. He's trying to praise her. Should she feel any sense of oh, nervousness about her body? He's going over and above saying, no, you are beautiful. You're incredible. He's being very specific as a way to honor and praise her. Verse 6, until the day breaks and the shadows flee, I will make my way to the mountain of myrrh and the hill of frankincense. Changes metaphors from two fawns to two mountains. And it pretty much speaks for itself, right? This is his way of channeling Lionel Richie and saying he's going to enjoy her beautiful body all night long. That's what he's saying. Verse 7. You are absolutely beautiful, my darling. There is no imperfection in you. You're perfect. And that's in the seventh verse. told you this is very uh, specific what our author is doing here. It's in the seventh verse. All right. If you go back and you look, he has highlighted seven features about her body. And that's because the number seven is the number of perfection in the Old Testament. It comes from the seven days of creation. He's, say, he's not just saying you're perfect. He's like, you are perfect, perfect, perfect. Right now, is she actually without imperfection? No, she's human. What he's doing is saying you're perfect to me. I only, I see you and you're perfect to me. And this is where we hear an echo of God speaking to his bride, the church. Remember Ephesians 5? Paul says the job of the husband is to love the wife like Christ loved the church. Uh, Ephesians 5, starting in verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her to make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of water by the word. And then it says he did this to present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or anything like that, but holy and blameless. God looks at the church, looks at me and you, and he calls us holy and blameless, not because we are blameless. We're surely sinful, messed up people, but that's what makes grace so amazing. He looks at imperfect people and ascribes to them the perfection of Christ when he looks at them. So Christ makes us perfect in God's eyes. That's why we need Jesus. We need his perfection to cleanse us from our sins so we can be reconciled to God. This whole book, even this chapter on sex, has another narrative at work. It's God's love for the church. You can't forget that. That's why sex 
is about serving your spouse, not yourself. It's because sex is a celebration of and a reflection of God serving us, not God serving himself. You might say, yeah, but these opening verses seem so self-serving. No, they don't. If he was self-serving, he wouldn't be saying anything. There'd be no words. He's speaking this over her, serving her through affirmation and praise to create a haven of love and trust where she could be naked before him and totally secure about it. And this is where I want to stop right here now and go ahead and give our soul work to our husbands. We call this homework, but you know, it's not homework, it's soul work, right? Because nobody wants homework. Here's your work this week, husbands and wives. I want you to write down in the spirit of this you know, seven thing, this wasp, you're going to write one yourself. Seven specific things you treasure about your spouse. At least three of them should be physical. All right? And then I want you to tell one another these things that you write down. You can even do it in the bedroom like they did here. Call it your song of Solomon night. All right? I don't know. Verbalizing affection. I know it's going to increase affection. All right? I know some of y'all are in the spot in your marriage. You're like, awesome. I love my church so much. This is our homework. We're very excited, right? Good. That's good. And you should do it. And if that's not you, if you feel like your marriage, if you're married and you feel like that's not you, this is not a, in a place where in your marriage that you could do that, that would actually cause a lot of uh, pain, confusion, something like that, then you need to talk about that. You need to talk about it. You need to be vulnerable with one another. I would encourage you to to actually go and get some marriage counseling, to have someone else help you articulate what's going on there and make some progress there. We're going to keep talking more about that, about that later. Let's keep going. Verse 8. Come with me from Lebanon, my bride. Come with me from Lebanon. Descend from the peak of Amana, from the summit of Sinir and Hermon, from the dens of the lions, from the mountains of the leopards. You have captured my heart, my sister, my bride. You've captured my heart with one glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace. This is full vulnerability met with full delight and celebration. She has completely captured him. He sees nothing else. And this is, this is the ideal. That's why it's here. This is the way the marriage bed should be. He's bringing her away. This is whole like descending from the mountains, this idea of Jesus. He's just bringing her away to their new home. He says, my sister, my bride. By the way, sister doesn't mean incest or something like that. Don't, don't get lost there. It's just a term of endearment and closeness, okay? She is the sole object of his heart. And by the way, it's not just that her um, torso is captivating. He goes actually back to her eyes and neck right here, right? He goes back to her. She, the whole woman, mind, body, and soul, has captured his heart. She's altogether lovely and now is the object of his undivided praise. And so they go to bed together. Verse 10. How delightful your caresses are, my sister, my bride. Your caresses are much better than wine and the fragrance of your perfume than any balsam. Your lips drip sweetness like the honeycomb, my bride. Honey and milk are under your tongue. The fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. Whew. Okay, honey and milk. How does he know they are under her tongue? Because he's tasting it. They're kissing, right? Back in the day, we called this French kissing. You know what I'm talking about? Now, I guess, like, actually, this is way before the French ever got here. This is Hebrew kissing is what we need to rename it as, right? You're welcome. All right, what you're seeing here, look, this... Here's the, the cool thing. I love how these, like, 
how the Bible all connects with, with everything. If you think back to Exodus, Exodus 3.8, God says he's going to bring his people out of slavery and into the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And he would dwell with them there. Y'all, he's calling her his promised land because he has longed to be with her. And now the day has finally arrived where he can enter the promised land. That is how spouses should talk to each other in the bedroom. Verse 12, my sister, my bride, you are a locked garden, a locked garden and a sealed spring. This is him acknowledging up to this point. She's a virgin. Her garden has been sealed and he is praising her for it. And we spend so much time, it feels like I know in the church, saying to our kids, to our single people, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. We can downplay how fruitful a locked garden is. A locked garden can grow fruit undisturbed that will ripen at the right time, that the right time has been a, a thread running through our book up to now. It's a good thing for her garden to be locked until now. We'll talk more about that goodness behind God's design for a woman's garden to stay sealed until marriage and for men to stay out of gardens until marriage. We're going to talk about that in a minute. But what I want you to see here is there's no shaming going on, which is completely at odds with the culture around us. You got, I told you, as we continue to go through this book, God's way of love and the world's way of love is going to continue. The chasm is going to continue to widen between the two. And the world's way of love would even be to shame those people, shame you, Christian, for you saying, no, no, I'm going to hold on to my virginity until marriage. The world would say, what's wrong with you? And here, what's, what's happening is the exact opposite. It's being celebrated. It's being celebrated. Verse 13, we're going to keep going. Your branches are a paradise of pomegranates with choicest fruits, henna with nard, nard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon, with all the trees of frankincense, myrrh and aloes, with all the best spices. You are a garden spring, a well of flowing water streaming from Lebanon. He's now evoking all the senses as he embraces his bride. The sight of a lush garden, the taste of pomegranates, the smells of cinnamon and saffron, the sound of flowing water, and, and that feeling of sensory overload, y'all, that's intentional right now. That's what married sex is meant to be, a blissful consummation of their loving union in the act of sex. And having said all of this to her, praised and honor her and taken her to the safe, secure place of the marriage bed, the bed that represents the security of their marriage, now she speaks in verse 16. And she says, awaken, north wind. Come, south wind, blow on my garden and spread the fragrance of its spices. Let my love come to his garden and eat its choicest fruits. Remember how she has said, refrain to the daughters of Jerusalem, do not awaken love until it's time? Well, now it's time. And she holds nothing back. She calls on the, the winds of the corners of the earth to come in and blow the doors of her garden open. She's opening herself to him and inviting him to come to her and enjoy all of her. And so he responds, I've come to my garden, my sister, my bride. I gather my myrrh with spices, with my spices. I eat my honeycomb with my honey. I drink my wine with my milk. She invited him in. And so in he went. They are enjoying one another in full as they become one. In fact, he says, my. Do you notice this? He says, my here nine times. 
Nine times. It's the most anywhere is a random fact, but it's the most anywhere in the Old Testament in a single verse the word my is used, okay? And you might think, that sounds a little possessive. No, no. In Hebrew, that's actually a suffix tacked onto uh, the word it precedes, which is him expressing as many ways, as, he, as many times as he can, he's becoming one with his bride. It's a beautiful declaration of unity. And there in the most intimate of settings where a husband and wife are coming together, making love, that's where the author himself, God himself speaks up to affirm their lovemaking. Eat, friends, drink. Be intoxicated with caresses. It's almost like too simple English would be be drunk with sex, right? That's what he's saying here. Intoxicated with caresses is more poetic and better. This is right there in the Bible. In other words, lose your inhibitions in the safety and security of your marriage bed. Some think this might be the daughters of Jerusalem speaking. Some think Solomon, some think God himself. And no matter what line, and that's kind of what I take, no matter what line, though, you follow, it leads to the same point. God affirms and even calls for our enjoyment of sex in marriage. He takes pleasure in those bodies that he has carefully designed for pleasure, now having pleasure. He's our cheering section, affirming what is happening here in the marriage bed as good and glorifying to him. I told you, marriage is, uh, excuse me, sex and marriage is not just about procreation. And maybe you grew up in a tradition where that was all that you heard. But what you see clearly, there's nothing in Song of Solomon really about procreation at all. It's all about sex as recreation and enjoyment between a married couple. It's beautiful. Now, let me take us to the second part of the sermon. Having seen the wedding night, I want to draw out three truths for you here that I think reveal to us God's design for sex. Three truths for it. The first, sex is God's gift for serving your spouse, not yourself. Again, it's the main point of today and also the the first of our our takeaways. I made it the main point because it gets to the heart of what so many many issues people deal with in this area. Because here's what happens. We fall victim to the lie that sexual desire equals sexual entitlement. That's because the desire is there hey, we must be entitled to fulfill it. That's always been the lie of Satan, right? In the garden, Satan, um, God gave Adam and Eve boundaries for their good, and Satan convinced them they were entitled to go beyond the boundaries. And right here is where the greatest amount of heart work needs to be done, maybe in all of us. And truthfully, this is where some of our singles are wonderful models of Christ-likeness that married couples should listen to and learn from. we got single people who, of course, have sexual desire, but they know that desire doesn't mean entitlement. And because they've submitted their desires and their whole lives to the lordship of Jesus, they abstain. The heart of marriage, scripture says, is demonstrating the gospel through how we love and serve our spouses. And this is true even with your physical body and sexual desires. You don't serve yourself, you serve your spouse, and then you trust your spouse will serve you. That's the way of Christ. Paul gets at this in 1 Corinthians 7. He's talking to husbands and wives, being super practical with how the gospel applies into marriage. He says, listen, because sexual immorality is so common, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife, and each woman should have sexual relations with her own husband. A husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise a wife to her husband. A wife does not have the right over her own body. Her husband does. In the same way, a husband does not have the right over his own body, but his wife does. Do not deprive one another, except when you agree for a time 
to devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again. Otherwise, Satan may tempt you because of your lack of self-control. All right. Here's what is so cool to me about this passage right there. Your body is not your own. If you're married, your body belongs to your spouse, right? But look at the verse right before. Now I'm going to back you up just a couple of verses to what Paul says at the end of 1 Corinthians 6. Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, who you have from God? You are not your own. For you were bought with a price, so glorify God with your body. You're not your own. Just as Christ served you, gave his life for you and your needs, surrendered his body to the Father's will, you and I are to do the same. Glorify God in our body. And a clear commanded expression of that in marriage is that we give our bodies to our spouses in an act of trust. They will meet our needs. This is what we're saying. We're saying we're trusting you to meet the same need and trusting you not to abuse what is given to you. And the only time we will abstain is for prayer. Otherwise, we're coming together regularly, but we'll abstain for prayer because that's another way that we will be deeply intimate with one another for that time of prayer. Can this be abused? Yes. Of course it can. When desire becomes entitlement, it will be abused. That's why sex must be an act of service. I can't take your body. I can only receive it. And you can't take my body. My body's entrusted to me by God to glorify him with it. So I can only give my body to you. That's what's happening in chapter 4 of Song of Solomon. He's receiving his bride. And then when both husband and wife give their bodies to one another, just as they've given their lives to one another, we got wind blowing spices in all kinds of directions and love so blissful you lose your mind in it. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. That's the first one there. Sex is for serving your spouse, not yourself. Here's the second, second truth, super important to understand the Christian view of sex, the biblical view of sex. Sex is exclusive to marriage, just like our worship is exclusive to God. It's a big statement. It's one that the modern world weaponizes against Christianity. Let me explain it. If you're not a Christian, listen, I'm glad that you're here with us because at least hopefully you get a little bit of a clear explanation instead of some just stereotype out there, a clear explanation from Scripture. I'm going to do a little bit more on this on the uh, conference we're having this coming weekend, all right? But I want you to see... How all-consumed, first of all, how all-consumed husband and wife are with each other. Before I show you the biblical command, biblical command, see the point. Last week we talked about how marriage was a covenant, not a contract. And the reason is because God designed marriage to be a depiction, a human depiction of his relationship with us, covenant. He commits himself fully to us and calls us to commit, himself, commit ourselves fully to him. So you can't be a Christian and worship other gods. That's the fruit of that. It's an exclusive covenant between us and God. Our worship is reserved for the one true God, and our marriages are designed by that same God to be as exclusive as our worship of him is. The exclusive committed love of a husband and wife are, remember Ephesians 5, it's about Christ and the church. Christ has one bride, the church. The church has one groom, Christ. Add to that 1 Corinthians 6, we belong to our spouses not to ourselves. It reflects the relationship that we are to have with Christ. This is why in the Old Testament, I said this last week, every time Israel, God's chosen people, they start worshiping another God, golden calves, gods in the land, etc. God calls it adultery. It's his bride having spiritual sex outside of their marriage with God. Whole book of Hosea is about the relationship between exclusive sex and exclusive worship. 
and sex being exclusive to marriage is so important, it gets codified in the Ten Commandments, right? Exodus 20:14, do not commit adultery. You say, well, that's Old Testament. And if you aren't married, would sex still be adultery? I'm glad you asked because Jesus comes along and has something to say about it, all right? Matthew chapter 5, you have heard it said, do not commit adultery, that's Jesus' little way of saying, yeah, I know you've heard it says in the Ten Commandments, and he's talking to a whole bunch of Jewish people. But I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. It's true for men and women here. Every, every single time, the Bible employ, employs this word lust, epithumia. It uses it in a negative context, context because it's talking about indulging in a sexual craving. Lust is a sign of sexual entitlement cropping up in the heart. It's not about serving. It's about taking. For example, that's what porn does. You take to satisfy yourself. This is one of the many reasons, and there are many reasons porn is so destructive. I'm not even going to touch societal reasons. This is one of the many personal reasons it's so dangerous, because what's happening the more and more that you indulge in porn, you are feeding and growing a massive entitlement monster in your heart. It's going to come out all different number of ways. And some of you think, and you never say it, but you're thinking it. When you get married, your spouse is going to be your God-approved porn. No. It's not what's going to happen. You're going to destroy your spouse with your entitlement. I've never seen a porn addict get married and just have a healthy sex life. I have seen a porn addict get married and their marriage get destroyed because they never dealt with it through Christ before they got there. In fact, every time you see in your New Testament the term sexual immorality, the Greek word there is porneia, where we get our word pornography. In fact, our word, the root of it, pornography, is basically graphic sexual immorality. The New Testament consistently says any sexual activity outside the marriage bed, premarital sex, extramarital sex, anything in the, yeah, but it's not technically sex category, that's porneia. It's directly in violation of scripture. Hebrews 13, 4, marriage is to be honored by all. Remember, it's always going back to marriage and going back to who God is and God's relationship with his people. Don't get lost on that and think this is just a set of rules. There's way more than that happening. Marriage is to be honored by all and the marriage bed kept undefiled. And you need to take this and hopefully this sobers all of us because God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterers. So those of you who may be asking, okay, well, yeah, but well, then where's the line before it becomes immoral? It's the wrong question. It's not where's the line. It's when's the time. That's the question that's being asked in Song of Solomon at the right time. So really, frankly, you shouldn't be slinking around a locked garden, messing with the gate, asking, I wonder if God approves of this or not. No, man, we just nap together. We don't do anything. That is like saying, our heads are made of butter, and we just sit by the fire, but we're not going to melt. Why would you do that? I don't understand that. Either you're hoping to sin, or you're some kind of sicko who wants to torture yourself with temptation. Flee temptation. Don't take a nap with it. Flee it. You need to turn the channel from Grey's Anatomy. You need to turn over one click to Nat Geo. And you think about those wombats running away from those cheetahs. That's what you need to be, all right? Flying to the river. You know what I mean? That's you, fleeing temptation. Don't. Sorry, I get a little, get a little hot about this. Here, really? Uh, a lie that's being told in our culture, I'll, I'll go ahead and tell you, you don't need to test, to, to test 
the fruit of the garden to see if you are compatible with it. Because some of us have bought the lie of compatibility. I need to live together to see if we're compatible. I need to sleep together to see if we're compatible. That's the logic of the world. What's underneath that? Me. Self. Sex is about self. That's what's underneath that. Self is on the throne. No, that's not the practice of biblical Christianity. Trust the God of grace. Trust the God who designed, who is love, made love, and as we see here, gives love. And as you pursue his way of love in your life, he will make you compatible with one another. Of course he will. Here's the last thing I want to say. And y'all, by the way, one of the hardest things about this sermon in particular in this series uh, and we're going to talk about sex again uh, because of the way the, the book goes on. But I know there's so many things I feel like, gosh, I would love to talk about that. But it's just this is where our text leads us. So um, I just wish I had, had more time with us. But I, I do need to say this. This is the last truth I want to say today. If you are a Christian, then neither your sexual sin nor your suffering are your identity. Obviously, our passage today is pointing towards the ideal, and we should pursue that. That's our, our text for today, and um, we should all pursue that for our good. But like all Bible passages, what I've been trying to show you is that they point to Jesus. Let me start with suffering. i got enough friends who have experienced sexual abuse to know that you hear a sermon on this and think, yeah, but so, you don't understand. Somebody broke into my garden and stole from me, and it wasn't my fault. It messed me up. I want you to know how sorry that, that I am. I want you to know God sees you. I want you to know it's not right. I want you to know any perpetrator of abuse should be criminally prosecuted for it. I also know from those friends how hard it is to even let your closest friends know about it. So I just want you to hear you're not alone. What happened to you is not who you are. Your virginity is something you make the decision to give away. And I know there's a common thought that says that can run through your head. And through your heart, it says, well, since I'm already broken, I'm going to run towards darkness instead of light. This is a church of and for broken people, none of whom deserve the light of Christ, but who long to be healed and transformed by it. And because of his grace, we have had the opportunity to see it and walk into it. So please run to Christ. I'm not claiming it's going to be a simple, easy road when you do. No, it's easier to run to darkness and hide harder to walk out into the light, but I promise there is healing there. All I can tell you is we want to walk with you, and I do know that God will walk with you. It might be a long road, but you will experience a depth of grace and healing I know you long for, and it's available in full in Christ. In fact, this might be the, the area that has built up a wall between you and God, and he can break that down, and that can start today, and you can find renewed intimacy with the Lord. I say that to sinners as well as sufferers, because I think, about, I think about Christ and who he spent his time hanging out with. And it was those who the world called sick, right, who the world said, you shouldn't touch them, they're diseased, they're broken, they're messed up, and it's others that the world called sinners. And this is who he came, to heal the sick and to save sinners. That is Jesus, and he is here in full for you, that same love is still extended to you in full today. Let me pray for us. And let me give you a chance to respond in prayer. I think that's probably appropriate. You've heard 
the scripture, you've seen this beautiful picture of the marriage bed, these truths about how sex is designed to reflect God's great love for his people. I want to give you the chance to respond in a couple of ways. First is to thank the Lord. If you're a Christian, thank the Lord that he has saved you. He is all you need. And he has saved you. Thank him. If you're not a Christian, you can receive his grace today. No requirements of you. You come as you are. Just turn from your sin. Turn from that darkness and say, God, I need salvation. I know that I can't save myself. I believe Jesus died to pay the price for my sins. I receive it today. Tell him that. He will save you right here, right now. You walk out of here free from the debt of your sin. Then, Christian, you need to take the space to repent before God from where you have chosen your way of love, the world's way of love over his. I promise he will heal you. I promise he will forgive you. You are not too far gone. It's not too dark in that secret closet that nobody else knows about. No. He can redeem you. Say, God, I repent of my sin. I'm turning back to you. I trust you to carry me in the light. And that's where I want to live. Father, this is our desire. We love and we're so thankful you've given us the scriptures that show us a beautiful picture of what love can be as you've designed it. All of us are going to fall short of of it and all of us are going to fall short of Christ. So God, I pray that this morning fans the flame of faith And I pray that that's what happens first. We'll be renewed in our intimacy with you and our love for you and who you are and what you've done for us. God, I pray that you would strengthen marriages, whether it's through finally putting words to some conflict, bitterness, resentment, whatever, that's been between a husband and a wife for a while. God, and then walking forward together as one as you have made them to be. Or whether it's through celebrating what you're already doing and strengthening what you're already doing. Thank you, Father, for your great gift of love. We worship you. We commit ourselves, all of us. We commit ourselves. Like you said, we were bought with a price. Our bodies are not our own. We're to glorify you. So God, would you glorify yourself through the church? Pray it in Christ's holy name. Amen.